Welcome to the Life and Times of Video Games, the documentary podcast about video games and the video game industry, as they were in the past and how they came to be the way they are today. My name is Richard Moss, and this is episode 17, Super Mario Kart. It's kind of hard to imagine a video game world before Mario, before Donkey Kong, before Nintendo. The long-running Japanese toy company and its mascot is just so synonymous with the medium now, and especially with the few particular types of game. Because what Nintendo does with Mario, and I suppose their other big characters too, is it takes an established game genre and changes it, refines and tweaks and perfects it, until you think they invented it entirely. And in a sense, I suppose they did. Because genres are not static things, they're like genomes. They mutate and adapt and evolve and branch out into related subspecies or into distinctly new species entirely. You could think of Nintendo and its key developers as video game geneticists. They direct these game genre mutations, design them, refine them, conceive of them. And in so doing, they radically alter the entire video game ecosystem. And so it began in the autumn of 1990, after the release of futuristic racing game F-Zero, itself a sci-fi-themed mutation on fast-paced arcade races like OutRun and Speed Race and Pole Position, that Nintendo EAD, one of the company's best internal studios, set to work on a two-player racing game for its Super Nintendo console. A game that would offer the same behind-the-car 3D perspective as F-Zero, but with the screen split horizontally into two viewing windows, one for each car, and with the races conducted at a slower pace. Because F-Zero had already pushed the Super Nintendo hardware close to its limits, and even at those reduced speeds, the developers predicted hardware troubles, so they also decided to do away with the track design ethos of F-Zero, which had lots of long straight sections, in favour of tracks involving more twists and turns. Then, to go with the slower, twistier pace, the development team wanted something fun and light-hearted, less life-or-death breakneck racing, more screeching tyres and smiles and laughs. And, well, what goes much slower than a Formula One-style vehicle is fun to drive and fits naturally with a twisting, turning racetrack style. By April of 1991, when development kicked into full gear, they had their answer. A go-kart. Their vibe would be pure fun, like racing on a track at an amusement park. And to help capture the mood and generate ideas, the whole team took a trip to the former Yamaha Raceway at Nemu no Sato Amusement Park to do some real-world go-kart racing. This was important research because the whole game's design would hinge on this joyful amusement park mood. It shaped every decision. It's why the team left out the obligatory speedometer, normally a must-have for racing games. But here deemed redundant, because go-kart racing is about feeling fast, even when you're actually going quite slow. It's why they created a battle mode, which emphasised the friendly rivalry and de-emphasised the idea of trying to become a world-class racer, 
And that's why you could never, ever be sure of a race victory. But I'm getting ahead of myself now. So let's backpedal. They had two go-karts driving around in pseudo-3D. Because the Super Nintendo's Mode 7 technology couldn't do real polygonal 3D. It had to cheat, do some fancy 2D sprite rotation effects that made it look 3D. And these two carts were driving, each in a separate viewing window on the screen, one in the top half, the other in the bottom. And inside each cart, a character artist had drawn a generic man in overalls with a helmet. These men wore the same outfit, had the same proportions, but each was a different colour, so you could distinguish between them. Then, after three or four months, once all the underlying code and driving systems and rendering and the like was all in place, Nintendo's development team turned their attention to the look and feel of the game. In an Iwata Asks interview in 2008, producer Shigeru Miyamoto recalled that somewhere around this point, they noticed how cool it looked if you stopped one of the carts and watched another drive by. But they thought it would be better if the character in each cart looked more radically different. So they tried putting Mario in one of them, because he could be recognisable even when you see him from behind. And that worked well. He looked great, as did his brother Luigi when they added him too. But Nintendo EAD wanted to have eight vehicles in the game's Grand Prix mode, so they looked to the rest of the Mario universe for more characters, always keen to ensure that each would be recognisable from behind. That gave them the Princess Peach, uh, Yoshi, Toad, Bowser, Donkey Kong Jr., selected over DK Sr., partly because he'd be easier to draw with a singlet on, and partly because the game was slated for a 1992 release, which put it in line with the 10th anniversary of Donkey Kong Jr.'s arcade game. And then to round out the eight, my driver of choice, Koopa Troopa. The eight drivers would be split into four classes. Koopa Troopa and Toad had fast acceleration and excellent handling on corners, but their top speed was slow and they were lightweight, which meant the other carts could knock them out of the way really easily with a shunt. Conversely, Bowser and Donkey Kong Jr. were big and heavy, so they had no trouble knocking everyone out of the way and were super quick at top speed. But they took a while to get up to that speed and were very difficult to handle on corners. Then you had Mario and Luigi and the Princess and Yoshi in the other two classes, which were more of an intermediate weight and handling and speed. And each individual driver had slight advantages and disadvantages versus the other in its class. So Koopa, for instance, would handle just slightly better than Toad, who'd be just a tad quicker. And in this way, each driver's abilities were balanced against the other seven, working in a a sophisticated version of rock, paper, scissors. This wasn't the only area where the developers laboured to keep an even playing field in Super Mario Kart, as they called the game now that Mario and the gang were involved. These same balancing principles came into the behaviours of the computer-controlled drivers in the Grand Prix mode, where they'd all slow down slightly when you're losing and speed up just a touch when you're in the lead. People in the industry often refer to this as a rubber band AI, meaning that the behaviours of non-playable characters are designed to adapt to player performance. 
to reel her in when she's doing too well and to cut her a break when she's struggling. As though the whole lot of them are confined within the bounds of a rubber band that flexes this way and that as the player stretches out, ahead or behind. Now, that Grand Prix mode I keep mentioning, it was available for either one or two players, but the team agreed unanimously to test it in single player only, until late in development. So just you against seven computer-controlled opponents, with the bottom half of the screen that's normally reserved for that second player, instead filled with either a rear-view mirror or an overhead view of the entire track. And it just took a button press to toggle between these two. Miyamoto explained the decision in a 1992 interview for the game's strategy guide, translated by the excellent shimapulations.com. In a two-player race, he said, And this is a direct quote. It's the competition itself that is fun. Overtaking your opponent with skillful cornering, for instance. End quote. When it's just you against the computer, your enjoyment is dependent upon fun mechanics. On a great driving experience and cool interactions with the other characters. In a really satisfying internal feedback loop. Which you get from things like completing laps and collecting and using items and so on. If they concentrated on making this solo experience fun, then they'd know for sure they had a great game. Because two-player racing would be exactly the same, except with an added layer of competition against another person. It would always be fun. This kind of thinking wouldn't work for every type of game. And indeed, for many narrative-heavy action games, it's perhaps been the undoing of an otherwise promising multiplayer mode. But here it was a very shrewd observation. And it was wisely not applied across the whole development process. Battle mode, one of the game's two multiplayer-only modes, the other being a a simple one-on-one matrix, was actually created early on in Mario Kart's development. And it, of course, would be tested with two players throughout the project. Which meant it had time to evolve from its initial version, which was just two carts zipping around in an open field shooting balls at each other. Director Hideki Kono recalled in the Strategy Guide interview that after about five minutes of doing this, you'd get really dizzy. They needed obstacles and landmarks on the screen to help you keep your bearings. And to make the battle more interesting. And it made sense also to to switch from flinging balls at each other to recycling the combat system from Grand Prix mode. But the Grand Prix mode didn't always have a combat system. Early in the game's development, the carts would simply race around the track. Lap after lap. Traditional racing game style. But the designers thought that felt flat. Like it was missing something. I'll get into just what that something was right after this short break. The Life and Times of Video Games takes a huge amount of effort on my part to make. So if you like the show... I'd really appreciate it if you'd consider making a monthly donation on Patreon at lifeandtimes.games/patreon. It helps me carve out more time to make new episodes, and it gets you some bonus stuff like backer-only sound bites and research notes plus episode transcripts. And I know a lot of you listen to the show in Overcast, and if you do, then it'd also be a huge help if you could add a star to your favorite episodes to recommend them to other Overcast users. That way I'll have a chance of getting a featured podcast slot in the app. 
That's all done algorithmically, so the more stars, the more likely it is to get there. Anyway, let's continue right where we left off, when the game's GP mode was still just about pure racing, but it didn't feel right. This is back when the guys driving the carts wore overalls, so someone suggested they could throw oil cans that would spill on the track and cause rival carts to spin out. But once Mario and friends were behind the wheel, this made less sense. So in came the idea of a banana peel. Banana peels are slippery, and thematically they fit with DK Jr., who loves bananas. So they seemed like a perfect substitute. But if you can drop a banana peel to spin out a cart behind you, it follows that it'd be nice to have another item to shoot at the carts in front. So in came the green shells that caused such havoc in the Mario Kingdom. And a quick note for the pedantic listeners, I'm well aware that you can throw bananas out ahead of your cart in the game and drop shells behind you. But it seems like those features didn't come until later in development. In time, more items followed. Stars make you invincible, as in a regular Mario game. And mushrooms give you a big temporary speed boost. One zoom forward. Coins collected off the track give a more permanent, albeit very minor, boost. So another item became a couple of coins to add to your tally. Meanwhile, a feather would let you cut corners without losing speed, or to take otherwise inaccessible shortcuts. A lightning bolt would make every other cart tiny and slow so you could run right over them all, and a red shell would be like a homing missile trained on the cart in front of you. And if you were playing with a friend, there was one more. A special item that would let you become temporarily invisible and steal your opponent's item before they could use it. Computer-controlled opponents would not have access to the question mark boxes that delivered these items. Instead, they'd each have one specific item they could use repeatedly throughout a race. For Mario and Luigi, that was the invincibility star. For Yoshi, an egg. For the princess and for Toad, a poisonous mushroom-slash-cupcake thing that makes you small, or large if you're already small. For DK Jr., a banana peel. For Bowser, a fireball that rolls around in a small circle. And for Koopa Troopa, a green shell. For players... The designers decided to make these items an element of chance, of luck, to make races more unpredictable and to increase the odds of a sudden upset. And so they took inspiration from Pachinko, a popular Japanese hybrid of slot machines and pinball, where players release one or more small steel balls into a playing field via a spring-loaded handle. The playing field is full of brass pins and small cups, and there's also a slot machine element that can get you extra balls. And the goal is to get as many balls to fall into a given cup as possible. There's very little skill involved, and it mostly comes down to luck. But some machines have features that change the odds of a given result depending on the circumstances. So too, in Mario Kart, would item selection be randomised, slot machine style, with some statistically driven variations. In simple terms, the lower your rank in the race, at that moment in time, the better the items you'd get. And conversely, the higher your rank, the more likely you'd be both to get worse items and to get hit by a non-player character's item. But racing is a game of skill. And here you had a random chance element that compromised the purity of the competition. So for a while, the developers considered giving players the option to race without items. 
they even implemented this no-item option in an early build. But gradually, their confidence in the way the items were balanced grew, and eventually they pulled it out entirely. Which is a good thing, I think. Because without the super speed of something like F-Zero, or a later game like Wipeout, or the time pressures of arcade races like Sega Rally Championship and Daytona USA, you need an extra element to, to dial up the tension. That's where the excitement comes from in games. Tension. And Miyamoto had a similar take on this. In that strategy guide interview I've mentioned a few times, he pointed to the fear a player might feel, that they'll be struck unexpectedly by an opponent's item. It's precisely because you don't know what's going to happen that makes it intense, he said. Adding that that indeterminacy, that knowing that something might happen, is where the greatest fun lies. And Mario Kart was big on the fun. Critics at the time gushed over how brilliant it was, especially with two players. Multi-format magazine Mean Machines called it unmissable for anyone with plenty of friends. While Nintendo Force said it bursts into life when you have a second player. GamePro talked up its cuteness and the way it managed to squeeze yet more fun out of the Mario universe. Superplay praised its inventiveness and character, and everyone had good things to say about the graphics and music. The only real complaints I noted from its contemporary reviews were of naivety. Of a few of them thinking that the game offered just two difficulty levels, just 50cc and 100cc, and not also the much harder 150cc that unlocks after a player gets first place in all three main cups, Mushroom, Flower and Star, as well as the Special Cup in 100cc. These three difficulty levels, I should add, were a huge part of the game's success. Most racing games are really intimidating. They're scary and hard, even when they're easy. Because even though easy modes tend to make the computer-controlled opponents pathetically inept, they seldom have much, if any, effect on your car. But Mario Kart was different. 50cc is super slow and gentle. An easy onboarding mode for new players to learn the ropes, to learn how to handle a controller. Which of course is helped by a sequence of track designs that gently ramps up the difficulty from one track and one cup to the next. Then 100cc is a significant jump up, but not an unmanageable one. And here the AI gets more aggressive, with the occasional shunt out of the way and more items being thrown down in that ideal racing line. Then 150cc, it's a pretty solid jump again, both in kart speed and in AI aggression. And you'll never win in that mode unless you're good. These little details are a huge part of why it's still loved and regularly played today. Its biggest fans even have annual world championships and weekly time trial and match race battles. They are amazing to watch. In truth though, the game's development processes and the resultant brilliance form just a tiny part of the story. Super Mario Kart's actual quality is almost irrelevant next to its impact and legacy. It had released to meager expectations written off as just another quirky Mario spin-off among a growing roster of them. Likely fun for a few sessions, but not worthy of any deeper consideration. But it ended up being the best-selling Super Famicom game in Japan, 
and the fourth best-selling Super Nintendo game worldwide. Well known and loved among even non-gamers, and still fondly remembered to this day across the cultural zeitgeist. It introduced a language of design and interaction, extended and forked from that of the main Mario platformers, which would form the basis of virtually every kart racing game to follow, not just the seven and counting best-selling sequels and four arcade spin-offs, but also in the many pretenders and contenders for the kart racing throne. Games like Diddy Kong Racing, Crash Team Racing, Sonic and Sega All-Stars Racing, Lego Racers, Speed Freaks, and so very many others. Several dozen by my last count. And let's not forget either that it more or less invented the kart racing genre as we know it today. Previously just a few crappy top-down racing sims that ran too slowly to plausibly simulate higher-powered race cars, and so were titled as kart racers almost for convenience sake. And thereafter the go-to genre for licensed games and family-friendly video game mascots. Far beyond just kart racers, it was such a revelatory experience for so many game developers that its influence would extend out like tendrils to, to touch every facet of the industry. Just to give you a few examples, Peter Molyneux, the creative director from games like Populous, Fable and Black and White, once name-dropped Super Mario Kart as one of his favourite games. The influential run-and-gun game Chaos Engine took inspiration from the way it gives players the chance to always come back from a seemingly hopeless situation, or just as easily to lose against all odds when your opponent pops up out of nowhere with the winning ticket, that perfect item for the situation. And Wipeout designer Nick Burcombe once told me how he took inspiration for the game and everything he's worked on since. From Mario Kart's layering of depth and challenge, and the incredible nuance that you discover in the track designs as you spend more time playing them. And for me it just doesn't get any better than those Super Mario Kart Ghost Valley tracks, with their squealing tyres and your ever-increasing speed, and the multiple shortcuts and jumps, and the risk and reward of taking a tight racing line, knowing that that's the fastest way to complete them, but that your lap time is shot if you get the slightest thing wrong because of the punishing bounce of those edge tiles and the unforgiving off-track abyss. Or there's the pressure you feel in the final lap of a race, as the music picks up its urgency and numbers start to flash, or the way a character gives you a sideways glance when you pass them, and a triumphant rally cry when they pass you. Or the way carts react to different surfaces, and how most shortcuts will only save you time if you use them just right. I could go on and on. But if you come away from this episode with anything, I hope it's this. Super Mario Kart is a game of intentional and unintentional nuance. A game that derives its depth and brilliance from its balance of forces, of luck versus skill, of slow versus fast, of bad versus good. A game where the little things mean nothing, and yet somehow everything. The Life and Times of Video Games is written, produced, scored, edited, and all that entirely 
by me, Richard Moss. If you're curious about the latest happenings in the world of Super Mario Kart, the next World Championship is due to happen in August this year. Check out ffsmk.org for more info on that. If you enjoyed this podcast, I'd appreciate your support. You can help by sharing your favorite episodes with friends on social media, by leaving a review in your preferred podcast app, or by making a donation. I accept one-off donations via paypal.me slash mossrc and monthly recurring donations on Patreon at lifeandtimes.games slash Patreon. Patreon backers also get various perks like full episode transcripts, bonus interviews and sound bites, and research notes with access to all of my source material. I'd like to extend a huge thanks to everyone who's supported me so far Especially my producer-level backers, Wade Trigaskis, Vivek Mohan, Simon Moss, and Seth Robinson. You can also follow the show on YouTube and Instagram, as well as Twitter, on the Life and Times VG handle, where I'll be trying to post a bit more often in the coming weeks. And as always, you can find show notes and past episodes and everything else at the website lifeandtimes.games. Until next time. My name is Richard Moss, and this was The Life and Times of Video Games. Thanks for listening. See ya.